if you're going to do the job properly, you have to find unconventional ways to communicate to the public. It, it's not a question of convincing the press of anything. It's a question of convincing the public. Keeping with our Mad Men theme this season, Ivy Lee was the father of public relations, the Burt Cooper, if you will, and Daniel Edelman was the Roger Sterling. He took Lee's foundation and spun it into a whole psyops operation, using a combination of human psychology and a bit of the old razzle-dazzle to schmooze legislators, trick the media, and keep big tobacco and oil clients happy. Herb Schmertz, that guy you heard up top, was the Don Draper. Slick and handsome, always with an expensive suit, he was the smartest guy in the room and mostly thought that both journalists and other PR guys were idiots. Schmertz is the guy who really turned media into another propaganda tool for the fossil fuel industry. He ran PR for Mobile Oil from 1969 to 1988 and became a master of media manipulation. Schmertz didn't just focus on placing particular stories. He set about fundamentally changing the relationship between corporations and the media. To Schmertz, the press was more of an obstacle between him and the public, or mobile and policymakers. And to do the job properly, you have to really go around the press or beyond the press or against the press to get a story out so that the public focuses on it, not the press. If you're just going to limit yourself to getting the press to focus on it, you're not doing the entire job. All of our madmen seemed to forever be just one step ahead of the press and their ability to establish oil as such an essential part of American life that you couldn't really question it to the point where for a long time journalists didn't even question it, is a big part of how it became so easy later to spread climate denial and delay climate action. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled, Season 3, The Mad Men of Climate Denial. Oil industry PR began, in part, as a response to journalists. Remember Ida Tarbell from our first couple episodes? Well, she wasn't the only muckraker with the oil tycoons in her sights. By the time Schmertz came around, Ivy Lee and Daniel Edelman had definitely messed with the media's minds. But Schmertz, maybe more than any of these guys, fundamentally changed the structure of media in a way that really opened up the floodgates for disinformation. He invented the advertorial for a start. He also invented issue advertising, which is now the only type of advertising the oil industry does. You'd think all they do is farm algae and research carbon capture and worry about climate change if you only paid attention to their ads. America is built on diverse views, different ways of doing the same thing. But we all agree we need climate solutions while meeting our rising demand for cleaner energy. Schmertz also bullied journalists into covering Big Oil's side of the story, and he encouraged his peers to do the same, which, sadly, worked really well. And he lobbied for corporate First Amendment rights and against any media regulations that would make it harder for him to use the press as a tool. Schmertz's contributions to the art of spin are so vast, we're going to bring you his story in two parts. But like so many of the rest of our madmen this season, Schmertz began his career in military intelligence. And that's where we'll pick up. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then 
the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Known during his heyday for dapper suits, cigars, and generally being something of a dandy, for the first half of his life, Herb Schmertz seemed more destined to be Secretary of Labor than a famous PR guy. Unlike Ivy Lee and Daniel Edelman, Schmertz started out as a lawyer, not a journalist. After graduating from Columbia Law School in 1955, Schmertz was drafted into the Army. French and Vietnam forces advance under cover of a heavy barrage in the Delta region of northern Indochina. The Vietnam War was just beginning, and given his law background, Schmertz was sent straight to work in counterintelligence in Washington, D.C. After two years there, it was back to law for Schmertz, labor law following in the footsteps of his older brother. In 1960, Schmertz signed on to work for JFK's campaign. He was a Democrat, an idealist, and he helped the campaign with voter registration and reaching out to special groups, including labor and various ethnic communities in New York. As a thank you for his campaign work, Schmertz was made general counsel for the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, a government agency tasked with mediating big labor disputes in the country. Four years later, Schmertz was back in private practice, but still consulting regularly for the government. Docks the whole length of the eastern Gulf Coast lie as idle as these in New York when 60,000 longshoremen stage a stunningly unexpected strike. When longshoremen from Maine to Texas went on strike in 1964, it was Herb Schmertz that President Johnson called in for help. When he went to work for Mobile, Schmertz was actually still working in labor. He handled the company's labor relations for five years. But his background in law and political campaigning, combined with his relationships with various labor unions, made Schmertz an even greater, if unexpected, fit for the company's public affairs office. By this point, 1969, Raleigh Warner was Mobile's CEO. He wanted Mobile, which always seemed to be playing catch-up to Exxon, to be more of a visible player in the industry. Schmertz had a lot of ideas on that front, starting with the idea of humanizing Mobile, giving the company a personality, complete with ideas that needed to be shared. Here he is much later in life, describing his strategy. Well, it was multifaceted. Uh, It was a personality where we believe very strongly about the importance of public policy issues. Secondly, we believe fervently that as custodians of vast resources and employment and everything else, that we were not doing our job if we did not participate in the marketplace of ideas. Third part of our personality was we believed in that a democracy is composed of a group of free institutions. We believe in free markets, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, academic freedom, freedom to organize and participate in union activities. 
Schmertz believed that freedom of speech was a right that corporations should have just as much as individuals. Sound familiar? One of his first moves was to shift mobile away from just advertising, you know, gas, and toward what came to be known as issue advertising. If you hear an oil company ad today, it's almost always about an issue. Consider this ExxonMobil carbon capture ad, for example. Energy is a complex challenge. People want power. And power plants account for more than a third of energy-related carbon emissions. The challenge is to capture the emissions before they're released into the atmosphere. ExxonMobil is a leader in carbon capture. Our team is working to make this technology better, more affordable, so we can reduce emissions around the world. That's what we're working on right now. They don't even mention that ExxonMobil has a consumer product you can buy. You wouldn't know from this commercial that they even supply gas stations. That all started with Herb Schmertz. But he didn't stop there. In 1970, when the New York Times opened up its op-ed pages to advertising for the first time, Schmertz developed a new kind of ad, the advertorial. He wanted Mobile's ads to be just as smart and provocative as any editorial that might appear in the section otherwise. He hired legit writers to write them and eventually ran them every week for decades. They ran the gamut from squawking about taxes to complaining about the media to unexpected takes in favor of public transit. Schmertz talked about one of his advertorials on the PBS show, The Open Mind. Herb, thanks for joining me today. Great pleasure to be here, Dick. I, I want to turn as quickly as possible to a new fairy tale, the uh, mobile ad or op-ed piece or editorial, call it what you will. That We call them pamphlets. Pamphlets, but they appear in newspapers. Yes. A New Kind of Fairy Tale was the title of Schmertz's latest advertorial before this show, and it criticized PBS for running a film that stereotyped Saudi Arabians. It was, of course, in Mobile's interest to be seen as a friend and staunch defender of Saudi Arabia. At this point in time in particular, the company was increasing its profits mainly by expanding its development and production in Saudi Arabia. But at, at the end, your conclusion in the ad, we hope that the management of the public broadcasting service will review its decision to run this film, meaning you hope they wouldn't run it. Well, or at least we'll review, right, review it and exercise responsible judgment in the light of what is in the best interest of the United States. Right. Do you think they did exercise responsible judgment? Uh, I think they, they did a better job after this ad uh, appeared than they otherwise would have. There were points of view taken very opposite to those that you've just expressed. Yes. Yeah, I, I okay. mean, that's, that's what the whole thing is about, is to get all the points of view on the table. Of course, that advertorial was also coming from a corporation that happened to be spending a small fortune to underwrite programming on PBS. So it wasn't necessarily the harmless sharing of ideas that Schmertz makes it out to be there. And really, no advertorials were. They were meant, as Schmertz said, to influence the influencers. And the company thought it worked. In various documents and speeches, Schmertz referred to how they helped shape the discourse on key issues to the company and establish Mobile as the thinking man's oil company. In a long buried briefing that we found called Corporations and the First Amendment that Schmertz wrote for the American Management Association in 1978, he explains why he chose the New York Times for these ads. He writes, quote, The Times was chosen because it is published in the nation's leading population, communications, and business center, because it has a highly intelligent, vocal, sophisticated readership, and because it reaches legislators and other government officials. 
In short, it was the paper most likely to reach the largest number of opinion leaders and decision makers. Schmertz also talked about the program as a great success in this briefing. Mobile found that the medium worked, he writes. The messages stimulated discussion among influentials on both sides of the issue, exactly what the company had set out to do. In a document uncovered by Kurt Davies and the Climate Investigation Center, Schmertz goes one step further. Here's Davies to explain. They talk about having influenced the New York Times editorial uh, viewpoints. And the document says, quote, Our analysis shows that the Times has altered or significantly softened its viewpoints on conservation, moving from a total reliance on conservation to advocating increased production incentives to solve the supply shortage, on monopoly and divestiture, moving from approving the breakup of the oil companies to opposing divestiture, on something called decontrol, moving from opposing decontrol to urging phased deregulation on natural gas, moving from urging price controls to endorsing a speed-up of deregulation and decontrol of new gas prices, and coal, moving from advocating strict environmental safeguards to suggesting more relaxed controls on offshore drilling, moving from valuing environmental concerns at the expense of exploration and development to urging accelerated offshore drilling, and on gasohol, which is another name for ethanol, moving from increased subsidies for gasohol production from grain to arguing against such subsidies. So they tallying how they have affected the viewpoints of the New York Times on conservation, monopoly and divestiture, decontrol, natural gas, coal, offshore drilling, and gasohol, all things that they had written op-eds on. Now, of course, any PR guy worth his salt is always going to claim more success and more credit for that success than he might be due. But the important thing here is that the goal of the advertorials was to influence key decision makers. Harvard science historian Jeffrey Supran has studied these advertorials at length. No doubt the fossil fuel industry has been very effective at, for one thing, presenting itself, you know, in terms of personas rather than just a corporation. He says you can't even tell the difference anymore. Embedding themselves into our culture and our society and our media in an increasingly insidious way that makes it hard to discern when you are being advertised to versus, you know, you're you're simply being sort of reprogrammed to see the world and society in a slightly different way. Mobile was convinced enough that its advertorial strategy worked to keep running them weekly in the Times for decades. It was even a program that Exxon kept going after it acquired Mobile. Mobile and ExxonMobil have pioneered issue advertising for decades on, frankly, climate change and every other topic of political concern to them. They've been open and forthright about this, um, even in some of their advertorials themselves. They literally invented uh, modern opinion advertorials. And as you know, they've taken out about one in four of all the editorials that have ever appeared in on the op-ed page of the New York Times. Jeffrey has an accent, and this was a phone interview, so I just want to make sure you heard that. He said one in four, so 25% of all advertorials that have ever run in the New York Times op-ed pages were commissioned by Mobile or ExxonMobil. Political scientists studying these advertorials have described this campaign as towering over all other competitors in its sheer volume and expanse. ExxonMobil doesn't run its advertorials anymore, but it's moved on to the latest iteration, campaigns made by the New York Times itself. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. 
It's not the newsroom. It's the brand studio that the New York Times created. But still, it's the same company that puts out the New York Times newspaper making oil companies' ads for them. See if you can spot a bit of the schmertz magic here. In 1978, he said the goal of Mobile's advertorial campaigns was to, quote, stimulate discussion among influentials. In 2020, the New York Times brand studio website's tagline is, quote, stories that influence the influential. Here's a campaign they did for ExxonMobil last year, highlighting the company's algae biofuel program. These vibrant green dots, microscopic living organisms, are algae. Look closely. Algae grows almost everywhere, from murky ponds to out in the ocean. And scientists recognize its potential to change our energy future. The goal? To one day fuel our Again, the brand studio is separate from the newsroom. There's a definite firewall between advertising and editorial. And every time I talk about these campaigns, New York Times reporters bristle at the idea that they are being accused of being manipulated or influenced by industry. That is not an accusation that I'm making. Whether they are or aren't influenced is not really the point. It's not even the goal of these campaigns. The goal is to reach and influence certain types of readers, opinion makers, influencers, policymakers, and to wrap the industry's messages in the cloak of credibility provided by the New York Times or the Washington Post, which also does this. Last year, The Post ran a series of stories that its brand studio created for the American Petroleum Institute, all about how, quote, natural gas and oil are helping to deliver a sustainable fuel mix. These campaigns are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue for newspapers at a time when the business model for journalism has never been more strained. And when you ask for proposals on them, as I did, ad salespeople start offering all kinds of things. You could place content they write for you in the climate section. You can peg it to key words like climate change and make sure it's a suggested next read on any related news story. In 2020, influence doesn't look like an oil tycoon in a top hat showing up at your desk to twirl his mustache and tell you to spike a story. It looks like readers being fed a bunch of oil propaganda before, after, and right next to your legit climate reporting. We have Herb Schmertz to thank for that. But at this point, we can't just blame Schmertz. The media has to look at its role in all of this, too. After all, propaganda can't exist without a delivery mechanism. And while media was an unwitting pawn of the industry for quite some time, it's been quite a while since media figured out what exactly the industry was up to. We're going to talk about that and the media's responsibility in a future episode. But first, we're going to finish up Schmertz's story and hear a little bit about all the other things he did for the oil industry and for PR in general including suggesting for the first time that companies don't actually have to be nice to journalists. In fact, Schmertz got a lot more out of bullying them. We'll also dig into that PBS underwriting I mentioned before, the entire network Schmertz created for mobile, and how he ended up being one of the most influential men in British television. All that and even more next time. We'll see you then. Drilled is part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Julia Ritchie is our editor. Our managing producer is Katie Ross. She also created this season's incredible artwork. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by B. Beeman. 
Rika Murthy is our editorial advisor. Naomi Lachance is our fact checker. Special thanks to Richard Wiles and to our First Amendment attorney, James Wheaton, and the First Amendment Project. Drilled is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We appreciate their support. You can find Drilled on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a rating or review. It really helps the show. And you can follow us on Twitter now at We Are Drilled and visit our new website, drillednews.com, for climate accountability reporting, newsletters, and behind-the-scenes stories from this season. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.